Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. My podcasts often deal with distressing situations which are not suitable for children and some adults for that matter. Some of what I discuss may trigger uncomfortable emotions. If that does occur, please reach out to Lifeline Beyond Blue or any other support service or person you feel comfortable with. Hello, I'm Narelle Fraser. I was a cop with Victoria Police for 27 years, 15 of those as a detective, having dealt with all types of crime from a stolen bicycle to a stolen life. I witnessed the effect crime has on all those involved and became one of those victims myself in 2012 when I was diagnosed with PTSD. However, out of adversity comes other opportunities like this, my own podcast. I still pinch myself, but thanks for listening and coming with me as we explore the human side and impact of crime mental torment that would last as long as until the appropriate person who did it stepped forward and you knew you were going to get belted, you knew you were going to be beaten, you knew you were going to be in pain and you're not going to put your hand up for that in a hurry. I grew up in a loving family environment with mum, dad and my two younger sisters. You know, it never crossed my mind that my mum wasn't my mum, dad wasn't my dad and my sisters weren't my sisters. We were surrounded by friends, either our own that we'd nurtured at school or in the neighbourhood, or by mum and dad's many friends. We had great fun as kids because that's what being a kid's all about, isn't it? Going camping, playing in our cubby house and riding our billy carts that dad had made with no brakes and what one could loosely term steering, which was a bit of rope. The only cruelty that I knew was having to wait until 6am Christmas morning to open our presents. While I was being young and free, Ben Shenton's life was being controlled to the nth degree by Anne Hamilton Byrne, a beautiful, charismatic, yet manipulative and cruel woman who ran a cult called The Family in the Victorian countryside. Anne Hamilton Byrne had many people believing she was the reincarnation of Jesus Christ and deceived young single mothers into giving up their babies to her, promising their children a better life. But she also deceived many powerful political figures, academics and the like, who saw her as like a messiah of sorts. And that better life that she promised included lying to the children 
beating them, being cruel to them, forbidding them from any form of social interaction or relationships, eating sparingly, never mixing with anyone from the outside and living a regimented life run by a rule book with every single day being the same routine. On the 14th of August 1987, at 15 years of age, Ben Shenton, my guest today, found out what life was really like after police raided his home and rescued him and another six children. He found out his mother wasn't who he thought she was. His siblings were not siblings at all, but they were children whose mothers had also been deceived by Anne Hamilton Byrne. You know, it's difficult to grasp how someone who's experienced what Ben Shenton has could find real deep love, enjoy those relationships that he was forbidden to have and have a family of his own which he cherishes daily. How does anyone deal with what Ben Shenton was exposed to and come out the other side a successful businessman, a loving husband and loving father? Well, let's find out, shall we? And welcome, Ben, and thank you so much for your time today. Thank you, Noelle, for having me on. I really appreciate it. Uh, Not as much as I appreciate it, Ben. Thank you. So for those people out there who don't know what the family is, could you explain to our listeners about the family and how it came to be? No problem at all. To put this in context, you need to take a a trip back into the culture of the 60s because every ideology which and every community that springs up that functions is a product of the culture that they're part of the wider culture so the the 60s especially through the late 60s was a time of incredible turmoil um world war ii had happened the nuclear bomb had been dropped uh, so many of the major superpowers were arming up with nuclear warheads. You had the Cold War settling in. You had a huge push of communism that had come out of uh, Karl Marx, flooded through into down into China, through through Russia, down into Korea, um, and through down into Vietnam. And we're settled on the Vietnam War. Uh, the hippie movement with a lot of university students that are the product of obviously what happened after World War II now arriving at campus. Uh, and really the world was very much changing. You had, as I said, the hippie movement living in communes, a real communist push that came from the Frankfurt School. And I could trace all of that through America Academia and Black Panthers and the Beatles with, you know, the occult being pulled back from, um, over um, in India as they they came back uh, with a lot of their stuff and it was a tinderbox 1968 the the takeover of the Democratic Party by the communists with the five uh, famous five as it were and the Beatles actually sang a song so you want a revolution um, really saying back down stop this so you you had at that time great social turmoil. Um, you had, uh, I guess, very much a sexual revolution happening as well. A lot of single mums with babies uh, created, adoptions going on, and really a sense of people looking for and realising that there has to be answers outside of 
the world we're living in. Uh, there was a big push for the idea of the almost a, a, a restart, the age of Aquarius was spoken of. As I said, you've got to go back in there and, and live in those times to actually get, yeah, this is what was actually going on. So yoga had begun to be quite fascinated, meditation, LSD, um, from, a, from a position of psychiatrists trying to help people in Australia are actually saying, listen, this could be the great new drug that can help people with psychiatric problems and was being experimented on and, and done. So I say all of that to say it was the perfect environment for something like the family, the cult, to a seedbed in a sense, for this seed to form and to grow. So you'll have a woman, Anne Hamilton Byrne, or at that stage, Anne Byrne, or Anne Hamilton, I should say, um, had background for her is that she'd had a very difficult upbringing, um, parents that one was a father returned from World War Two itinerant, moving around a lot, not there supporting. The mum was in and out of psychiatric hospitals and was heavily into the occult as well. And Anne grew up very distant from her family, living, boarding schools. <laughs> so she had a lot of her own issues. Got involved in Hatha Yoga, um, began teaching it, connected with a guy who was the Rainer Johnson, who was um, out of... Melbourne University, uh, the, the, the Dean of Queen's College, so highly respected. He had rejected the, re the reality that Jesus Christ is who he claimed to be and was looking into the occult majorly found and connected with him. And he was convinced by the early 60s that she was um, who she claimed to be, the Messiah. A great new order was being started. Uh, the Great White Brotherhood was another name used that connects back to Blatsky, which you've got to go over into the occult coming in through Europe and down through there reading her teachings. So he was convinced that Anne, who she said she was. And whenever you start a community, it's the second person who's the most powerful. The first person... Okay, but when someone of that level um, comes in and is well-respected, he gave credence to Anne and he was able to pull a lot of people in. She, as you said in your intro there, she also was helping a lot of people, single mums issues, people that were very upset with the environment they were in, um, dissatisfied with marriages, lost children, um, and my mum would have fitted into the dissatisfied with a marriage, really struggling, and also major health issues. So, yeah, that that would have been the beginning of the context of it all and how it started up. And he used to give, Rainer Johnson would give talks. Uh, very quickly, property was bought. People gave huge amounts of money, believing this was the starting of a, of a new world order and fully convinced that Anne was sent by God, the reincarnation of Jesus Christ, to start this with signs and wonders and major healing ones happening as well. I mean, it had it all. It was very supernaturally charged and people were seeing things with the use of LSD. Uh, she had two key doctors there, psychiatrists, John McKay and Howard Whitaker, uh, where H Howard Whitaker was responsible um, to actually self <laughs> to look at and to analyze by the Australian government on the use of LSD. And he was, it's almost like having the thief in charge of the stash of money. <laughs> he, he was setting the conditions and hand and pumping people full of this stuff in 
um, a in Kew in New Haven, which was one of the psychiatric wards that was owned by SEC members that both these men practiced in. So yeah, very, very scary stuff, but it had a major stamp of approval from the Australian government all the way down through academia um, and into vulnerable people. And no wonder they believed, uh, the vulnerable people believed in um, Rainer Johnson and his, let's call him his disciples, I don't know what another word is, but no wonder they believed him because this was backed by the government and these people were very professional and very powerful people, weren't they? Yes, yes, they were, very much so. And if ever any question would be asked, Rainer Johnson would be trotted out. Um, he had, uh, I think, uh, Ansett family were very close friends of his. Uh, and when it actually, some people from Channel 10, I think it was, as it was now called, but it had a different name then, I'd need to go back. When a hit piece, in a sense, you could call it a hit piece, but when a reporter came looking, um, spoke to cult members, put it put it actually out there that this was a cult and it was dangerous, um, Randy Johnson rang, rang up, I think it was Bob Ansett for memory, and he managed to lean on Channel 10 and get another piece to be done in the media, um, totally a very friendly piece. So very well connected, very well respected, and Raina Johnson provided that that level of respectability to, in essence, nothing to see here. It's fake news. Everything you've heard is incorrect. I fact-checked it. It's beautiful. Don't believe the lies. Where have we heard that before? Hmm. <laughs> yes, you're right. And and so how did you become part of the family? Okay, so I spoke of my, uh, my mother being one of – she had Jewish um, history person, uh, very much involved in the Melbourne community, Jewish community there, married a guy, so she was a member of the St Kilda Synagogue, married a guy from, I think, another Melbourne synagogue, very well respected, a guy called Ivan Rosenhoff, very well respected people. Um, He was returned from World War II, having, you know, a very respectful career there, working. But you could probably well imagine seeing things, being involved with stuff uh, that wouldn't be ideal. Probably suffer from post-traumatic stress syndrome very easily. Um, I just spoke to my mum, in fact, two days ago and said it was regular, as with many returned war veterans, to wake up nightmares, nightly, cold sweats, very difficult. And so she, she had a difficult marriage. And as it was very standard in the 60s, you didn't talk about the problems you had at home, you put on the face of everything's wonderful, but behind the closed doors, things weren't perfect. Um, Although her sons from her first marriage remember quite an idyllic marriage. So anyway, she had been in car accidents, um, had major back issues, and I would believe part of that would have been psychosomatic um, as well. That added to it, she was paralyzed. She says, I put myself in bed, wanted to die, wanted this is my way of checking out had gone along to half the yoga classes that Anne taught in Q, of which ah, um, her grandmother, that yeah. connection of which yeah. her mother, my grandmother, also went along to initially. And she began to believe, ah, this is this is all good. Now, my grandmother pulled out of the spiritual side. My mum kept engaged. And my mum got to a point where she's bedridden, um, can't move. Her husband's very sick as well, and she'd gone along to have some exploratory surgery on her back. So she was dealing with, I believe, uh, vertebrae that were 
nowadays you better go in with keyhole surgery and, and take out the bone, shave the bone, and it releases the nerves, the muscles. In fact, she had that operation over where she lives now overseas only recently and got a new lease on life. Um, so she, back then, um, she had a brother of hers who studied at the Mayo Clinic. They sent her x-rays over there. They came back going, there's nothing we can do. She's about to go back in, gets a knock on the door and turns up. Her eldest son opens the door and comes in saying, Joy, if you're willing to let me heal you um, and live, you know, serve me in a sense, I can heal you. Uh, and and my mum says literally she felt called back from the other side within six weeks. We're going to put you in prayer and meditation and light and the rest. Gave her some, some exercise to do and within six weeks my mum's up and walking and began very much the process of, of leaving her life behind her, disengaging from it and became a, a bona fide cult member. So my my mother left her first husband. He got excommunicated because he didn't believe Anne, who was who she says she was. Um, she shacked up as Anne often would do. She was into splitting marriages up. Uh, connected her eventually with my father, a guy called Peter Shenton, and they became an item. Um, even though she gave him a cover story, and I cover this in a book that I've written of the in depth manoeuvring how it all happened, but. Of, Cut, cut for time here, eventually connect with my father, um, did deed poll name changes to basically make it look like they'd married each other, even though they never did. And 1972 is, is when I came along. Um, my mum had spent time at the property in Eildon, Lake Eildon, called Kayalama. And at 18 months of age, my mum was told, listen, I need you to come to my property that was in a place called Wimbera in Upper Furniture Gully in the Danganongs and be the housekeeper, look after it. Um, and you won't be able to take your son with her with you. Um, my dad had been sent back overseas again to England, uh, which split the two of them up in a sense. I was, she was a single mum and the reincarnation of Jesus Christ, I just asked her to give her her son. She's going, this is an upgrade. What an honour. And went through a deed poll name change where I changed from my birth name, Andrew Bellman Shenton, to Benjamin Saul Hamilton Byrne. She changed her name to Naoma Hamilton Byrne and then changed hers to George Bellman and left me as Benjamin Saul Hamilton Byrne. Um, and I became Anne's son. My earliest memories are, were in the cult. So can you tell us about your earliest memories and what you were led to believe growing up in the family? Sure. So my, my earliest memories would have been bewilderment, abandonment and loneliness um, would have been the earliest ones. Um, Anne, which was mum, was a woman who we would be lucky to see on weekends if she was in Australia. Uh, she'd be away for great lengths of time. We were looked after by sect members who we would call aunties. Um, I didn't see my mother ever. And the very first time was when I was 11 and she was just Auntie Joy. Um, and so she was non-existent as far as I was concerned. I, and I grew up believing Anne to be my mother who was doing God's work. And we lived under a regime that was very... Um, regimented, Monday through to Friday, um, never changed whatsoever, up early, you know, 5, 5.30, hatha yoga, meditation, you know, setting up a day where we'd go and do schoolwork, exercise, everything on the clock, 
meditation, hatha yoga, and it followed that way. The weekends were very similar, but we had a different teacher. There were husband and wife that were tag team, the uh, Helen Dawes and Leon Dawes, and uh, they clearly split up. That's what Anne designed, and both remarried. Um, so it was, yeah, I, I grew up believing that these people looking after us were uncles and aunts um, and that mum and dad were really there if ever. And we were ruled um, when they came there, there, there was initially a, a, a record of everything we did very clearly put in place. Um, and, and on such and such a day, Ben did this and this is what we did. And then Anne came up with a rule book which she would sign off um, with the rules that would change. Um, she'd come up with new stuff and that would be signed off and implemented and we live by that rule book. And it's very interesting here, Noel, that every community has laws. Okay, for the community to exist, they have a belief system, they have laws that are enforced and they produce an outcome. So the cult was no different. Every, every house has that, every community has that. It's what the rules are based on as to whether you have a healthy outcome or not. So this, this was no different. Um, it had its rule book. It had its laws. They were enforced very rigidly um, and very harsh results uh, that were designed. But a healthy community has the same. Every, everyone, they have a vision. They have values. They have um, practices um, that are there. I'm, I'm talking directly out of IBM's 139 that we go by, which I've worked for for over 20 or 23 years now. Um, we have a code of practices that we follow to that there's consequences if we don't obey them. So the only real issue in them, um, those practices is, are all there for every community, is what are they? Are they based upon a good moral code or are they bad? Um, and that's what it came down to. These these were not based upon a, a Judeo-Christian moral view that produce civilization in, in the whole world. These were based on an ideology that was uh, very, very different that Anne actually handed out to people, three books that laid out that ideology, um, Yoga and the Bible, Science and the Breath, and Autobiography of a Yogi. And they they were used to lay a, a framework for this. And then she based, based on that, she then came up with her own set of ideology rules and things that were enforced and followed by everyone. Mm. And, and I understand what you say about that rule book, Ben, but the issue I have with that is that um, we were generally, when rules are made, uh, you're not lied to and, and you were, uh, would I be right in saying you were lied to because you believed that your mother was Anne and your mother was actually Joy? So, yes. I understand there's rules and we all have them, but with most rules, people don't lie outright like Anne did. Okay. Bingo. So, Noel, you've touched on what is fundamental for a healthy culture is there is a fundamental belief in it of honesty and integrity. Part of a social contract for a society to exist is truth and honesty. Most people in society, when we function, expect our rulers and we ourselves don't lie, don't steal. When you find out that's not the case, you end up with totalitarianism. You end up, so they say about communism, is actually say that people in there, they know they're being lied to. And we're finding out more and more that our politicians, our leaders, our judges and our rulers are actually crooks, liars, cheats and thieves. And Anne was no different. It's criminal. 
So when someone in authority says that they care for you, they claim to be putting things in place that are good for you, but they aren't. That is that is the highest level of criminality. Um, and absolutely, the very foundational stuff that's part of a social contract is truth. And that upheld, that enforced, when that doesn't happen, and when anyone suspicious who thinks they're being lied to confronts that and is and is excluded, shut down, told they're an idiot, deplatformed, you, you have a cult which is dangerous, very very dangerous. And you're right, I, I got to when I got pulled out, find that everything I'd been taught, the majority of it that were foundational truths, turned out to be a lie. That was very unnerving, and it's left me with a deep suspicion in life and it's not unhealthy it's just i'm i'm aware that just because everyone says something doesn't mean it's true you know, i hate to pop to everyone but father christmas is not real the world has a social contract where we lie to our children and it is it's a lie father christmas is not real but he was saint nicholas who was a christian man who cared for three girls who needed money so they could get married and it was charitable but it just it just works so it's it's important not not to lie Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a very good point. Mm. And Ben, you also uh, so your aunties. Correct me if I'm wrong, but the aunties at the family at the home at the house, they were. Was it true that they were your siblings? Um, quote unquote. Was that their mothers, or are they? Who were the aunties? No. Okay, so the aunties were cult members who were very loyal to Anne. Um, most were nurses, teachers that in the initial years, they would almost swap in and out. Or when I say swap in and out, that, that it was like a revolving war. Anne had to settle on a group of very committed people who were willing to be on a two-week-on, two-week-off roster. Some of the, we would call them foster children, so they weren't claimed to be our brothers and sisters, but foster children were their children. Um, some of them were. Um, but yeah, they were, I would call loyal lieutenants in a sense that were willing to give up two weeks of every, on a two week rolling roster doing what you would consider, I guess the, the Hindu term for it is guru savior, which is service to the master, um, where that was part of, of their service, part of their, their, you know, and had paid for their karma. Um, cleared that there, there was nothing they were not willing to do in service. And I, I would say very much so and create an ideology that allowed these women and men, they, they were as much <laughs> living life behind the wire as we were as much of a victim to this ideology in serving and that had untold damage on their own families and their own lives. Can you tell me about your relationship with your siblings? Yeah, it, it's. We used to call the place Noella Concentration Camp. Um, we were passably well read, <laughs> but obviously controlled what we, we would do. But we, we got pretty early on that this, this really was very regimented, very controlled. Um, and the relationships, part of that is you cannot have the prisoners. In relationship with one another, where they will commit, there'll, there'll be an uprising, there'll, there'll be a breakout. <laughs> so oh. relationships were designed by Anne that p- part of keeping control over people is you control the relationships they have with one another and make you only dependent upon the captor 
Um, and I get your Stockholm level of syndrome here with keep people isolated, keep the narrative always changing, make sure they don't form relationships with one another, always suspicious, always setting one against the other, divide and conquer. So we all reacted to this very differently. Um, and I won't go into each of the other individual stories of how they responded, but my, my way of survival, and, and when you're in an abusive environment, you've got to find a way to survive. And they say kids are very resilient. No, kids just work out they have to survive and you do what you've got to do to get through it. Um, and I know from your experience, you would have dealt with many uh, children at the absolute end of themselves. And you, and you do, you sort of marvel the ability to, be able to shut their mind off to things or the ability to, be able to forget stuff yeah. or their yeah. ability, a coping mechanism. Now, what that does is that wise you a certain way. My coping mechanism was, was almost a Stockholm syndrome. I, I would flow with authority. Um, I would do what they tell me to do. Very early on, I worked out that if anyone stole anything or broke any of the rules, we'll haul into a room. Huge inquisition, great fear. I mean, mental torment that would last as long as until the appropriate person who did it stepped forward. And you knew you were going to get belted. You knew you were going to be beaten. You knew you were going to be in pain. And you're not going to put your hand up for that in a hurry. Um, and I remember just my early one of my earliest memories is me saying I did it. And I didn't. So I worked out, what am I doing? While that fixed that situation, I got punished. So I then said, well, the way to do this, if I know the person's done it, I'll just tell this is the person. Why, why should we all suffer? Because they're, they're unwilling to take the punishment. They knew what the rules are. They broke them. And that, that is one of the greatest ways of keeping a community of people under control is that the – and we've watched this happen in Victoria. Anyone who broke the rules, he was trying to pass the omnibus rule where anyone could tell on someone who didn't do it so that the police could come and put them back in their house. I mean, it's a classic. Mm-hmm. You end up getting the, the citizens to tell on each other. So that was how I responded. Um, that meant then I had very little relationship and any trust with them. Um, so I, I had a very difficult relationship with a lot of them. And in fact, I've had to go back to some of them deeply, you know, would you forgive me? One of the boys, I mean, I was complicit because I hated him um, and I had this power of getting him. He had, um, he suffered from psychosomatic dwarfism, um, which means growth hormones not being created so he would grow. He had asthma, he had hay fever, he'd be locked outside at night, um, locked away in bathrooms. And if I disliked him, I could just set that up to happen. Um, so, you know, it's, we were given in a sense a level of power over one another um, to destroy each other's lives if we wanted to. And if anyone did build a relationship with one another and would very quickly separate them and make sure they couldn't talk or they both got punished and separated. So it was, it was a, a horrendous environment to grow up in, which as far as being able to build relationships with my peers, trust people, zero. I mean, it was designed that way. Mm. Oh, gee, Ben. Um, Ben, what sort of um, male role models did you have in the family? Okay, so keeping in mind here that the leader was a female, um, and can I balance this by saying I've worked with many women who are my managers um, who do an exceptional job in leadership positions. So just, just help people out here. Um, I work with a project manner at the moment at the moment who I've worked with for 15 years who I could not speak highly enough of incredibly talented and skillful um, lady and she'll know if she hears if she know who I'm talking about you know I took my hat to her so just 
yeah. let, let, let me balance that. I'm married to a yeah. lady I have the highest respect for and love for. But we were in an environment where where a, a lady was in power, um, the reincarnation of Jesus Christ. Men believe this and they were emasculated. So strong servant leadership for a male. So think of it this way. Men can function with women in leadership, okay? Mm-hmm. Um, they really, But it can really struggle with it when you're in a, a position of spiritual leadership, okay? Whereas women can easily do that. So when you're speaking spiritual leadership, you're dealing with an environment here that is it's emasculating. And the men that we had almost were willing to come under this and we're talk- I mean, I've just described the environment, <laughs> name, shame, denigrating. And so, the, 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 in a sense, the uncles that I had um, were the very interesting ones. My, who I believe to be my father, um, Bill Hamilton Byrne, had left his wife, um, had allowed her to go into New Haven under Anne, separated her, dumped his kids. You know, one... Um, some of the stories of what they went through was was not ideal at all. Really struggled with stuff. Um, so, yeah, I, 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 a male figure who's in authority, who's a servant leader, is the final authority. And when they're there to actually help you, when they're there to teach you, when they're there to guide you, when they're there to direct it, it can be a very healthy thing. But when they're emasculated, when they're, there is no authority about them, your view of authority is very dangerous, very warped. And so the, the, the male models that I had were not healthy ones that were able to direct and correct me, and they weren't the final authority figures. So my view of, of healthy male leadership was a very, very unhealthy one. I, I had no respect for it at all. Mm. And and we will get to it, but you've clearly uh, very much changed um, your beliefs and your attitudes about that. But incredibly, I I don't know how, as you say, when those role models, um, well, they weren't um, uh, strong. They were, as you say, um, what was the word you used? Um, um, Emasculated. Emasculated, yes. Yes. Yeah. Um, So... You said before about LSD. Could you tell us about the drugs that you're exposed to and the reasons why they were given to you? Sure. So I I would give the term psychotropics. Um, My earliest memory was being given what was called Mogadon, but I, you know, we, we lived under a haze. We were constantly given tablets, um, Tegretol, um, that they were a whole host, and Anne had psychiatric nurses. So she, she'd organised the prescriptions. She had doctors that would write them out. They'd get them filled. And we, we were fed a diet of this stuff and lived under, and I can't even tell you what the effect was. I do remember being very photosensitive. I do remember flattened emotions, um, you know, all manner of stuff. And I... I I don't know whether I went through a detox or not, but Anne heavily depended upon the use of, of drugs to keep us. And in fact, one of the older girls, which is probably quite well documented, um, Anna um, escaped, I think, as a, I I, for memory, it would have been maybe a 15-year-old, went to a property close by, told them the story of what had been happened. They called the police. The police picked her up, heard her story, 
spoke to the aunts and they just trotted out the drugs we were on saying clearly she doesn't know what she's talking about Lucy, look at the drugs she's on you don't believe a word of what she's saying and she was handed back and had to wait till she was 18 oh. going actually of all weird <laughs> ironic things serendipitous almost she went back to the very same house same people same police and she was able to leave and thank god for that very brave girl so the lsd and psilocybin mushrooms though were used by Anne to give what Anne would call clearings so the ideology went that we're all separated from God consciousness. We've been through many, many lives. We, we acquire karma. So many people would deal with that with our conscience telling us we've done bad. You know, there's this inbuilt, built into our software of right and wrong, uh, sense of morality. And you, you pick up this, this ideology, mysticism. So you pick up karma, you go through your many lives and you have to pay for that, which is why you come back as a plant, a gnat, an animal, whatever it might be. Um, and eventually hope to become a human, you work through those things. Well, the kicker for a lot of them says, if you can find an avatar, you can find God who's come to earth, who will take your karma, Saya Baba, Swami Muktananda, you know, the many of them that have been here, and um, they will take your karma for you. And this is what was taught in these books and cancel it out. Um, and part of making people aware of what their karma was and that they're being released of was to give them these LSD experience to unblock the memories. And that would then what she'd pay a price for. Now, at the end of the three, two day, five day, three week, oh. whatever period of time people were under this stuff, she'd then present herself. And I think you might have talked to Lex DeMant, um, who speak, who was the one of the officers, thank the police officers who did a lot of investigation. He would say that. And would appear to them in the room, light behind her with a bucket of dry ice, you know, <laughs> and appear as, as, as the wisdom. Who do you say I am? And many will say, she would say this, who do you believe I am? You're the Christ. Yes, you're correct. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. she was setting herself up as the person who'd paid the price for this. Um, and then what they then say is if you then remain mindful of the individual, of the person who set you free and do everything you can to do their will, then you accrue no more karma. And when you die, you become one with God, you reach Nirvana. And what was fascinating is one of the uncles, Uncle Leon, I actually spoke to him probably about 10 years ago now, spoke of having this vision. I remember when that actually happened. I remember the, the, the day and the location. He didn't go back to Melbourne. He was He went through a clearing. And he actually related how the vision he saw was he's looking at heaven, trying to get in, and because of his pride, he couldn't. Um, and that was the lessons he had to learn, whereas Christ says, I've already paid the price for you to have entry into heaven. That's why I came to earth, which is why we live in 2020. So here, the reincarnation of Jesus, giving him a vision under LSD where he can't get into heaven, the, the deception and the lies is outstanding, but that's what she used it for. Um, what age were you when you were given these drugs, Ben? So... I was very fortunate I was never given LSD, but from my earliest memories, I was always on medication, whether it was, you know, different tablets that we were purposely given or hidden in our food. From my earliest memories, I, I lived on this, this mixture of, you know, psychotropics. And when Anne was due to come back to Australia, having been overseas in 87, um, I, I thought I was 14. My, I grew up with a birth date of August the 30th, 1973 is my birth date. So I was still um, 40, you know, 14 at this stage. Um, and I was 14-year-old boys got LSD, 16-year-old girls got LSD. So I was, I was ready to go, ready to trot. So I'm extremely grateful that the three older girls, Sarah, um, Auntie and Anna, 
as a, you know, with their names or um, contacted the police. And that's what drove them, having all gone through these LSD experiences. And Sarah documents that in her book, Unseen, Unheard, Unknown. And I, I went back and have read that a couple of times. And just recently, as I finished writing the book that I'm about to bring out, um, Life Behind the Wire, I had a reread of her of her experience there. And it, well, it is tormenting what she went through. I just, it was horrific. No wonder they did everything they could to make sure we never went through it. They're my heroes. I don't doubt that for one minute, Ben. And, and I suppose um, that brings us to the next um, part of what I was going to ask, actually. It's a good segue into um, when you were rescued. Um, can you tell us about the 14th of August in 1987? Yeah, I can. So they've been a, a lot of issues. I mean, one of the greatest difficulties Anne had, and I cover this in depth in the book, and I'll just quick scoot by, is you you take cuttings, and I'm talking here of plants, they grow up in a glass house and then you put them outside. There's always this transition period where they could die. Anne never really thought through that, and she had a lot of issues of getting us from having grown up completely isolated to try and get us into the world. And she used boarding school for the boys. She used um, the girls going through um, correspondence school um, and had to put forward a medical case as to why they couldn't. So it was either, you know, they had mental issues or, you know, physical issues. So there was a lot of, by this stage, Sarah or Andre, she was known, um, had managed to convince Anne to let her be down in Melbourne. There was a lot of issues with her being in and out, um, inviting people back up to the property. She got thrown out and there, there was a lot of issues. The rule book had been, she'd organised for us, some of the kids to try and get this rule book we spoke of. Pages got torn out of it. They disappeared. So Anne and Bill and the aunts and uncles got wind of something was up. So Bill specifically came back to sort of settle everything, connect, everything's okay. And August 14th was pretty much the last weekend he had before he's going to go back to Anne. Um, we were going to have a big picnic. Everything's going to be fine, all excited. And every day we did a Hatha Yoga meditation. And we were looking forward to having this picnic, potentially going out on a houseboat, which rarely ever happened, if at all. Um, I could count on one hand how often that happened. So big excitement. And then suddenly we hear running on the steps, the door bursts open and there's these strangers here. And then we see Sarah and Leanne you know, suddenly there. It's all okay, kids. What the heck? <laughs> and it's on. And I, I have no clear memory, actually, of exactly what happened. It's, it's a blur to me. What I do remember is finding my way to the top of the the, the uh, stairway, which led to outside, and clinging clinging on to the, the balustrade and not wanting to go. Um, and that, in essence, was me having to make a decision of, I've done everything I can to leave this place, and I'm about, when Anne comes back, to go to boarding school, I'm out of here. And that's a path I've been dreaming of for 13 years. Everything in me wanting this to happen, seeing my older brothers go, it's the escape, I can't wait. And I'm about to be, this is about to be ripped away from me. And it would have been probably only no more than probably 20 to 30 seconds, a kind police officer saying it's going to be okay. But I just made the snap decision, you know what, I'm going to go get into the bus and I'm, as we're being driven away, probably no more than five minutes away, I remember making this statement. Um, it was almost like the light went on. A page is just being turned to a book. 
a new chapter is being written. This could be a new start. And quite serendipitous words, that's, that's exactly what it was. So kaleidoscope of emotions, events through the day. Eventually we get to the end of the day. I've got a in a bunk bed at the top, new pyjamas, toothbrush. I mean, I've been able to eat food, go and wash dishes in the kitchen. I'm so excited. I mean, I'm talking, I'm like, this is this is cool, freedom. <laughs> a kid, a kid being excited about doing the dishes, Ben, that is, <laughs> that is really something. <laughs> it didn't like, trust me, Noelle, it didn't last long. <laughs> we, I don't we, it <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm, I'm in a new house we built this year and one of the first things we did was to go out and buy a dishwasher and even then it's who's going to pull the dishes out and put them away. <laughs> For the house full of adults. <laughs> Welcome to the real world. Anyway, so <laughs> I'm I'm lying in bed at the, at that night. You know, the warmth of a of, a, of the darkness beating this around me in a, in a warm bed, thinking back to all the things I'd said that day. And we live by a motto: unseen, unheard, unknown. If we said anything that didn't hide what we were doing, and trust me, I'd been punished by actually talking to my mother when I came back from overseas. Just a random conversation um, prior from lobbing at a sec property, uh, Crowley House in Alinda, to coming up to where Eildon was. I'd been punished for that, so I had a file for this. Um, and I'm thinking through everything I'd said. Do I get into trouble for this? I've said this. Will I get into trouble for that? And then I, I had this moment where I've gone, I don't have to do this anymore. If I don't get sent back there, I'm free. And that was probably the first inkling of the shades of the prison wall and the door opening that mm. I might just be able to leave this prison for good. Mm. You had a particular view, didn't you, that um, Anne had, um, uh, oh, what's the word, um, made you believe about police? Yeah, yeah. So, so part of, very much so, Noel, part of all of that was Anne had to set up the authority figures of society as evil. And she set about saying the police are there to take you away in a bag, dark bag. They're going to beat you and drown you in the lake. That, you know, I, I remember waking up in the middle of the night, finding myself in this dark space that was hidden so the police couldn't find us. And that, you know, if anyone would go looking, it's fairly quite well documented that in the boys' room, we'd go through into the pump room, hole in the wall, climb into this dark space that you couldn't see or get to. So many, a, many a night for this period of time, and it probably lasts, I don't know how many years it was, as a young boy, I remember waking up living in fear of the police, the police coming occasionally there to, you know, someone put a report in, they'd seen these kids, because we, we lived on a lake, um, Lake Gildan, which is a holiday resort in Victoria, where thousands of people would, would descend every holidays, and they'd see these kids on this property and report them. Or food would be stolen out of their homes and they're like, what the heck's going on? You know, they've come from this property. They'd see the food there. So we get police rocking up um, as well as a, a child had gone missing who was a SEC member. Um, and that had been reported to the federal police and they came looking as well. So it sort of got a little bit of, you know, of interest. So Anne had invested interest to paint police this way, to then get pulled out of the cult and find out that that the police are actually deeply caring people that were willing to do everything and anything to help us. Um, didn't take me long then to realise here's reality. This group of people around us that were visiting us, that were taking statements of, that were genuinely engaged, deeply concerned. You know, I, I 
compared to what Anne claimed to be, I was able to just on that alone to very quickly be able to ditch that what Anne had said and who she was was a lie because one of the key lies I've been taught that police are evil. Police, we need to defund them. We need to get rid of them. They're evil people. Um, in reality, proved to be the, these people are actually heroes. These are at the coalface of dealing with criminals that were doing things that destroys the contract of society and at the coalface dealing with those people and dealing with the victims, the fallout of actually being the very first people that respond to help that are there at the scene that deal with incredible damage and grief and heartache to the point where many of those police officers had to ask to be removed from the case. It was so disturbing. It was, it was, it was, they, they were unable to process what they were listening to um, and what they were dealing with as they took our statements. So it had a huge effect on them. Um, but it, but and they're heroes. But it, it was something, Ben, that we in um, Melbourne or Victoria or Australia, it was just something out of a, a movie. I can remember it myself and thinking, like, this is under our noses, like yep. talking about a cult. You know, it was just it was yep. just so foreign to us. And, and you just said then that you, um, you realised that Anne had been lying to you about the police. So what else did you discover after being rescued? What other lies? Uh, okay, so just, just some fundamental things. My... All the kids were going over. They were not my brothers and sisters. My birth date was not August the 30th, 1973. It was July the 23rd, 1972. Um, my twin sister that I'd grown up believing, uh, one of the girls, was, was not, definitely not. She was older than I was from a different family. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am, but Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. 
In four weeks, the typical new user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. So not only was her birthday wrong, not even my sister. So all of them were not my sisters or brothers. Not one of them. Not even remotely close. Um, You know, it moved on. I mean, they were some fundamental things that were in there. And then so it made everything that Anne taught me. I was just able to all the spiritual stuff. I just ditched it. This is a load of garbage. I don't believe a word of it. I can see the fruit of it. You'll know them by the fruits. So I just looked at then became just... You know, I've got to start again. I've got to hit the grand reset button. Different birth date, different name, different. I found out who my mother was. Um, you want to talk about trauma? <laughs> Your worst nightmare. I mean, Auntie Joy. So here's another thing. Auntie Joy was set up. So Winbu was with the caretaker place that Anne lived in for a good 10 years before she shifted headquarters over to Crowther House and Alinda, another, another set property. Joy was the caretaker. Anne would come up spend the weekend with us and then say, listen, now I'm going to go back down. I should pick one or two of us to go with her. And this was, I mean, holly, you know, prison break for a week. Woohoo, with our <laughs> mum. Okay, I mean, you've got to get your head around this. This was on yeah, another level. And that, this this, this yeah. was the best of the best, like incredible. We were the favoured one to be picked to go there. Yeah. She'd ring up Joy in inverted commas and Joy would say, no, I don't want them there. And we'd, so she'd go, oh, I'm really sorry. I just rang Joy. Really busy week. She doesn't want you there. You're going to have to stay. So she would do this time and time again. So in my brain, Auntie Joy is this evil, Mm. killjoy, you know, Mm. of just the last person you'd want. Well, Brian Cousins, who I believe was a member of the uh, uh, government department, uh, Community Services Victoria, I believe, tasked with going through and getting all of the paperwork on deed polls, who our parents were, and eventually he sat me down with a uh, social worker um, and laid out to me the deed polls, and I, I talked to you what they were before. You know, and I'm, I'm, Auntie Joy's my mother. Oh. I went from any person over forty, any woman could be my mother. The possibilities were bright into this person, the worst, the worst nightmare possible. Um, and then shortly followed up with a phone call from her um, that was listened into by the, you know, the social workers we had. We were living at a Lambia reception centre for boys and girls that you probably have a file for. It's a place where um, people that have been sexually abused or out of uh, prison or whatever else were, were it's a waiting place for them. So Banksy unit was set up for us. Um, and so this phone call is received and Joy tells me in, in Anne's voice, which is this voice she'd use whenever Anne had told her to say something, Ben, you're an embarrassment to me. Um, don't bother knocking on my door. If you do, I'll shut the door in your face. End of conversation. Um, so any chance of a restoration was that. And then she went on as my half-brothers that I then met and began to build a relationship with, confronted her. She told them, you stay in contact with Ben. I'm not going to talk to you again. 
and they didn't. And one of them had had a, a, a pretty good relationship with her, you know, a fine man who understood her, understood her pathologies, understood the issues, was in relationship with her. Um, and she never talked to him for decades, decades oh. after. So it, it was full on. Oh, Jeepin. It is just so hard to grasp. It really mm. is uh, for anybody that, uh, I mean, I've never, you know, had anything like that happen in my life. Ben, how did you manage to navigate your late teens and relationships and fitting into society? Because I can't imagine how, well, how did you? Uh it wasn't long before the nickname of psycho was applied to me and oh, well earned. <laughs> well earned. No, no, it was well earned. <laughs> I had no idea. Had So you take a kid who's used to his peers, if ever they disobeyed rules, telling the authority figures on them. You put a kid into a high school oh, right. with that yes. mentality. Yep. If, if ever I was hurt, I'd get angry immediately. So I remember... Just being in the locker room, people stuffing around, a basketball hitting me on the back of the head. I grab it, march out through the canteen, stump across the schoolyard and throw it onto the the um, you know, oval, stomp back in, pick up my school books and sit down in class with the very same people, <laughs> staring and glaring at them. I mean, I had no idea how to connect. I had no, no same stories that they had. No interest in cars because I'd never been hardly around them. TV shows I really hadn't watched that they watched. I gorged on Papa Smurf um, and all the cartoons after I got pulled out. I'd, I'd watch them, um, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, uh, all of the cartoons, almost to try and catch up. I had no reference points for music, for interest. I didn't know how to connect with people my own age and no interest. So I, I really struggled to fit in and have a file for what these weird people were doing. I'd watch people come back that had been boyfriend and girlfriend on Friday, not talking to each other because they'd been to a party and cheated on each other. Um, I didn't have a file for how that worked. They'd come back with a smiley face on their arms, which when you light up a cigarette lighter and, and brand yourself, um, watching this going, why would you do that? That's bizarre. Um, I just I just unable to connect and fit in. Um, no social norms, no interest, no ability, no social skills. And part of a parent's role is from the very earliest age is to socialize your children. Um, of just teaching them how to talk, how to engage, what's appropriate, what's not. Um, when to say, how to, how to relate to authority, how to relate with your own children, how to be empathetic, how to care, how to be concerned, how, all of that. If you get bullied, how to handle that. I mean, my earliest stories told to me when I got pulled out of the cold is if someone bullies you, just take it. So there I am at Wattle Park High, no more than three months in, the big class bully bends me back over his desk, holds my two arms down to pin me, and I can't move anywhere. And I remember this advice, so I just relax, wait for him to finish, sit back up, and keep going. <laughs> well, in front of the alpha male doing that, where does that put me on the list? I'm now at the very bottom of the pile. Well, I had no idea that was the case. I didn't know what the rules were. I didn't know that the rules were the alpha male, the alpha female, and what all the rules are, and I cover that in my book. No one gave me the book of what the rules are to how to function. I had to learn them through trial and error and failure, and I went on a trip around Central Australia with a friend, Jason. I came back with a 
without any friends. At one point, as we're driving along the Nullarbor Plain um, in tears, and dear Peter Frost, who was the maths teacher who'd organised this trip for us all, explaining to me, Ben, you don't have a head start in life which you thought you have. You're actually well behind. And these group of people that have known each other now, you 11, some of them have known each other since kinder. It's going to take you time to learn them, to break in, to be accepted. And I remember coming back from that trip going, okay, I'm thinking. I have no idea. What I know doesn't work. I'm going to find the truth. I'm going to find out what works. Sink or I'm not going to, I'm not going to sink. I'm going to swim. I remember saying that to a, a lady, um, my cottage parents who I'd grown very close to by this stage of being sacked, not sacked, that actually um, had resigned under some extremely difficult circumstances. Um, they were accused of things they didn't do. And Paul Bontak just said, I'm not putting up with this. I'm, le- I'm leaving. I'm leaving. So I went to school with my cottage parents there. I came back with them sacked. I was distraught. People that were bought in, very kind, caring people, but... Rachel and Tim Cecil, I just went, you know what, I don't want to engage. And I remember saying to Rachel, though, I'm going to learn out how to swim. So I just started to investigate. I I removed myself from that toxic environment of the kids I've grown up with. They were, I thought, responsible for getting Pam and Paul sacked, which they partly were. They they brought the accusations um, that the administration had taken to them. And I got a foster mother who... um, my social worker was a Christian. Uh, she put me down with um, Blackburn Baptists that were registered um, to look after wards of the state. I ended up with the secretary there, was a name called Bobby Ashmore. I ended up having her as a foster mother, finished year 11, year 12 with her. And over that time, just began asking her questions. And she'd been um horrific start to life. By the time she was 19, she was a heroin addict an alcoholic, um, like completely alcoholic, couldn't survive without waking up drinking as soon as she got out of bed. On the trip over, which I think she said she'd been a les- lesbian, on the trip over to Melbourne from Perth, she'd slept with four different guys. By the time I meet her as a foster mother, I'm going, what's happened to you? How do you start it that way and become this? So I began asking questions and she told me, you know, that there was a guy who created us, he's in control. He won't violate you. You can know him. The miracles that are spoken of in God's word actually did happen. Um, And you can ask him and he will prove himself. So I went, okay, I have a file for supernatural stuff. When I was growing up, there was Hatha Yoga meditation and got into my mind when I was meditating once and yelled at, how dare you shut me out of your mind when she told us all to focus on her and then cursed me. I remember staring into my eyes. Um, I saw Ouija boards working. I remember after she did that, whenever we got into trouble, I'd feel suicidal. I'd feel depressed uh, until I told. It was like this controlling darkness would come on me and only like a black dog of depression would only lift off after. And so I began to go, okay, I have a file for there being a supernatural force out there. If what's changed Bobby's life, if that, if I can connect with that and ask about that, um, let me try it. God, stop it raining. Three minutes past four and 10 seconds, and it did. And I went, wow, that's cool. <laughs> All right, start it raining in three minutes and five seconds, and it did. Stop that dog from barking now. Stop immediately. Now, this went on for about six weeks. Every single time I asked in my brain, I'd be on the on the um, train platform outside school at Camberwell High, um, and I'd say to a schoolmate in three minutes and two seconds, going to start raining. 
ask, oh, can you make that happen? It would happen. Uh, wow, this is the genie in the bottle stuff. And I remember this very authoritative thought came into my mind. You know I'm real, stop testing me. No, I, I'm a born-again Christian. I've worked out that was God, and I stopped. Um, but I began to test God out and said, all right, God, I can, this is pretty cool. You might be worth getting to know. And Bobby um, was involved in Blackburn Baptist. We had a three-quarter way house. There were some people there that had been her and addicts looking after it. And I went along, and I remember them. one of them, Earl, saying to me, Ben, do you believe in God? And it was like, actually, yes. Yes, I do. And then I began finding out about him and eventually found myself in Blackburn Baptist pastor's office, um, very depressed, quite suicidal, struggling to fit into school and just said, I need prayer. I'm messed up. And I had a vision of Jesus Christ, um, took me back and now is not the time to go through it. I covered in my book, but I eventually Jesus took me back to when we were, went through water torture. I had held underwater and held there. Um, and then picked me up, put my head against his chest, said, I never meant it to be. And I've got to tell you, Noel, this plays with the boy's theology. My file for Jesus Christ was Anne Hamilton Byrne who destroyed me. And yes. suddenly in this That's vision, I'm yep. exactly mm. suddenly in this vision, I'm getting this same Jesus as a male dressed in white, flowing robes, long hair, picking me up, putting my head in his chest, said, I never meant that to be. That was not part of my plan. I'm like, whoa. It took me a year and a half of finishing year 12, past failing and then finding out it's transcription error and passing, leaving Bobby, moving to Ballarat, trying to find my own two feet, getting into uni, deferring for a year, looking for a church for my girlfriend, coming into the Potter's House Christian Church in Ballarat, hearing a sermon and thinking now, I've been close to God. I'm miles away from him now. I've done things I'm too ashamed to talk of. Um, and I feel miles away from what's the problem and then hearing what Christ did on the cross for me, challenged to respond at the end um, and go, you know what? That's my problem. I've broken relationship with him. I've done things that he said violates relationship and he's come to fix this. Um, and I want this fixed. I want to be in connection with a God who sees me in my pain, a God who can fix this. Um, and that really became a foundation to the beginning. That's what Jesus said. He who hears my hearing is like a man who builds his house upon a rock. When the waves come, when the storm comes, what you put onto your life and what you build will not fall away. So that began to be my foundation and began to help me. So what was cool then is the people in that very small church, no more than 20, began to treat me as a new creation. That's what God says. The old man's passed away. All things are made new. So I began to get help being socialized. I began to connect with people that I was on a journey with, worked out how to connect, how to talk, how to what was acceptable, what was not. They're very forgiving, but also, listen, that behavior is inappropriate. That's uncool. You need to change that. So that process began to happen. So it takes you through navigating and fitting in your society as best as I can all in one. Oh, Ben, that is, you know, I'm thinking to myself, I was just going to say thank God for Bobby. I don't know if, yes. if that offends you and I don't mean to, but I yeah, just, no. you know, Bobby absolutely. was absolutely um, your – Absolutely pivotal. And, and um, Ben, so did you, you just said then you mentioned something about a girlfriend. So how did you learn to um, be in a relationship and trust your feelings, trust your emotions and learn about 
real love. How did you do that? Um, look, the initial relationship with this first girlfriend was not a not a healthy one. She had her own issues. I had mine. Um, and we ended up having to split up. No two ways about it. Um, in fact, she decided to break up first, begged her to keep it going, and I was I was I had no idea what I was doing. I became a born again Christian. I got challenged about living clean, um, and you know I, I had a lot of issues. And one of one of the dangers many have when they've been abused is you can very quickly step into sexual perversion very quickly. Um, I, I you know yeah no details required, but I, I was one very messed up little cookie and stuff very much so so the challenge to live clean and begin to get this area clean that the word of god's clear on really helped me and so 12 months sort of passed by i ended up getting a job there was a you know now married to a woman i've been married to for 27 years so within a couple of months of arriving in church and we saw you know a lot of just this community believers i saw this 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 lady a lot um and by the time about eight months went past. I remember talking to my older half-brother, Steve, and just saying, I think I found the girl I want to marry. And he goes, Ben, have you gone out with it? And I went, no. And he said, Ben, 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 let me tell you how this works. <laughs> <laughs> you know, 12 years older than me, quite quite the expert, which yeah. you know, in a sense he was. He, he, he knew the groundwork. So I said, look, Steve, it's cool. I've got this. So we um, – yeah, I, I got myself a job. I became very interested in her, and I decided to build this on the foundation that God lays out in the relationship in the, in the Word of God of, of how to do this. I had no file. I didn't know what worked and what didn't. I'd know I'd screwed one up really good before, um, and there was no way I was going to cause a damage to another human being by my own appetites, my own inhibitions, my own problems. I, I needed to be rewired and fixed here. So, you know, within what would it have been? I arrived in church in January 91. I was started going out with her just after her 18th birthday in 92. Um, we were engaged about five days later. We both made up our mind, yes, oh. we like what we saw. And yeah. five and a half months later with the first free Sunday, um, I was by that stage, I got a job working at the state data center as a traineeship for the state government thanks to Joan Kerner's decision to do that so she could stay in power, um, I we got married um, and began a journey of applying the principles of God's word um, of honesty, of openness, uh, service, of, you know, no, nothing hidden. Um, yeah, we, we both <laughs> imbibed it, lived it. Um, I've had to talk through stuff, work through stuff, forgive one another, be forgiven, all of those things. And as you touched on the start, Noel, the contract for a relationship to work is honesty and not lying and not hiding stuff and speaking well of one another. Um, and that's that's has helped greatly to be able to work it through. So I've read a lot of books, um, you know, asked for a lot of advice off people that have made it work. And I've continued to do that, of just saying, I don't have a clue what I'm doing. I'm making this up as I'm going. The reference models I had, if I was to apply them, wouldn't work. I'm going to have to go and find out how to do it and then do it. And God, the Bible is actually, in reality, God's basic instructions before leaving earth, <laughs> if you take B-I-B-L-E. And I found that God speaks into family. He speaks into futures, our future. He speaks into finances, and he speaks into friendships, as does every ideology. And if you pick that apart and you live it, 
my my experience has been along and I would have safe to say millions of others would be able to say this this actually does work. This this restores, this fixes God's God's involved in this supernaturally as well. Um, and you know, as I said, now's not the time to go into all of that, but it works. So it's it's been good. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, ben, do you keep in contact with your siblings from the family? Yeah, and, and look, probably to the level at which it works, and it's it's interesting. I'm I'm going to use a, a thought. So I, I've always been fascinated with with war. Um, Anzac Day dawn service. I started going to those in Palo and at the end of each of the morning services, there would be, and obviously it's a lot about the return servicemen getting together, isn't it? Um, as we'd go and have the gunfire breakfast in the hall on Arrow Street in Ballarat, just off Sturt Street, and there would be returned soldiers there that would catch up, that would talk, and they would be relating the events that they'd been through, um, RSL. And I'd have to say it's probably similar. And the reason why they catch up is there's events they've gone through they just don't have to talk to people about. They, they were there. They experienced it together. They have this common file. And it's why we have community groups that I have a common file for that. So in reality, most of the catching up that I would do would be around events like that that used to happen yearly when I was in Victoria. But by and large, we really have had our separate lives. We've moved on. Um, and there's certain events that we will catch up on, we'll talk on. But yeah, to, as the years have gone past, I mean, I really did separate myself when I moved in with Bobby, my foster mother. Um, I was the snitch. Um, I then became, you know, they pleadingly almost wept. Ben, you've joined, a, you've left a cult and joined another cult. I became the the poor, deluded Christian who was, you know, so weak he couldn't stand on his own two feet um, and didn't know what he was doing. Um, and they, you know, they just didn't want anything to do with it. A lot of them. Uh, and the years have gone past, and that's changed to their credit um, with some of them others it hasn't it just it is what it is and I get it I don't blame them for that um, totally respect their position and understand it um, and in their position I get it I probably would have been the same so it's I have different relationship variant upon their willingness of you know my doors has always been open I'll occasionally tap on their, theirs and those that don't open it, I respect that and I don't go there. And others that do on the level at which they wish, I'm I'm happy to go there with them. Mm. You you would expect um well it would not be unusual for what the um all of you went through that um there would be relationships within um that family where it is fractured. And uh, some of them, you know, will never mend. And, and as you say, I understand that completely. Um, so you were very close uh, with Sarah. Uh, Sarah is one of those heroes that one of the three that left, wasn't she, to report to the police about the what was happening up there. But um, tell us a little bit about Sarah. Yeah, Sarah's, and we've we've talked offline on this, Noel, just briefly, and we, we connected yesterday. Um, and I say it again. So Sarah, very warm-hearted individual who cared for people and wanted to help. In fact, she became an MD doctor, um, would have gone overseas, I think, to Eritrea. She was up on the Burma border helping people. Um Incredible. I mean, when her book initially came out, Unseen, Unheard, Unknown, um, and there was a, a, a Channel 7 did a thing on there, 
bright was her future. You know, he was a woman who was compassionate, caring, loving, and that really never changed, but deeply troubled on suicide watch. And it wasn't long before she was prescribing herself um, drugs that would knock her out. They were anaesthetic level um, drugs that she was self-prescribing. Um, I think she also suffered from endometriosis, so she had some major pain and issues with all of that. So she was a very troubled soul, and you know, gentleman Ed Ogden, who was the police surgeon, um, who was oh, uh, diagnosed to yep. the younger ones with psychosomatic, yes, with psychosomatic dwarfism. Um, he really helped Sarah, and I, I would say along with another police officer, Denise Wright, who was in the Nutterwadding um, community CPS, I think it is, yep, if memory. Yep. 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 So she was she was one of the sergeants there. I just helped her and were very, very good to her, but very troubled, very suicidal. And that sadly never changed, but the wheels really fell off at the 10-year anniversary. Um, I remember visiting her in a mental hospital after having gone through shock treatment. Um, she got mm-hmm. struck off the registry um, and just went became a psych- psychiatrist. I think she studied for that and ended up a suicide attempt, losing one of the legs and... Yeah, a couple of years ago, one of the most tragic events I've had to do and um, was give a eulogy at her funeral. And just, just when the family movie by Rosie Jones came out, she's in it. It was very fluidly bloated. Um, the producer of that uh, film, Big Pictures, God bless her soul, was doing everything she could to help Sarah. Um, was trying to get doctors to her. Sarah had eventually agreed to go one, and I think just it all became too much for her, um, you know. And yeah, it was a very sad day when I got the phone call that she passed away. Um, they, they found her. Yeah. Anyway, so very sad. Very very sad story. Oh, it doesn't get much sadder, Ben. But but also there are. You were saying yesterday that there are uh, some uh, siblings that uh, you've kept in contact and that they've become very successful. One of them's got yes. four kids. So it's a. a oh, it's a mixture, isn't it? Of it, it really is, yeah. and so, yeah. some, some, as you said, I mean, I'm I'm thinking of two of the older girls that you know, wow, I've, their children are just you couldn't get two more finer human beings in the world. As a single mum, she married a guy that didn't work out for her. Uh, gone on, got her own business. I mean, just just runs it. Her kids are fantastic. She's had help, and by her own admission, says we've all got scars. Since we worked through another lady, went on and married a guy. It's been fantastic for her. Great kids. Um, yeah, and I said there's others. There's another lady um, who I think she works in a prison as a psychologist. At, you know, just on and on it goes. Just one after the other of that's outstanding survivors, incredible people that, you know, as I said, just very resilient, very wise in their areas of what they do. And as I said, they're not my stories to tell. I've purposely left names off um, because, as I said, it's, it's I have the highest respect for them. And others, you know, are really struggling with major mental issues, um, yeah, you know, need why. great help, great assistance. Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, and, it's, it's, and, and I would bookend it everywhere between the success stories, Dan to Sarah. You know, yeah, great yeah. hope, highly intelligent, yeah. you know, doing yeah. all they can to be contributing members of society. And others of them, as is quite rightfully say, I don't even want to hear about this. This is a this happened. I'm moving on in life. I don't I don't even want any publicity. I don't want my name engaged with it. Door shut. Don't want to hear about it. And I totally get that as well and respect it. 
Yes, yeah. Uh, ben, do you have any lingering habits or routines that you can't take from your years? And, you know, the, <laughs> the funny thing is the reason I asked that was <laughs> that when I said to you yesterday, oh, I'll send you a couple of questions just so that you know what I'm going to ask, and you said to me, well, I'm always up at 530 uh, so send me any time from then on. Well, I'll give you the tip, Ben. I am not up at 5.30. But I wonder whether that is from your years when, well, from when you were 18 months old, you were up at 5 or 5.30 with your Hatha yoga and your meditation. Is that why you get up at 5.30? No, Noella, great question though because and I'll, I'll get well, the reason you, I do get up at 5.30 is I, I have a regimented, and I say regimented, if you don't make time for certain things in life, the tyranny of the day takes okay. over. So I yeah. set time aside um, to read the Word of God, to calibrate myself to reality and to speak to Him directly. And that's that's okay. what starts my day off. However, having said that, what I did realize is that what would happen when I was in stressful situations is I'd set myself like a target. You need to do this by the count of five, one, two, three, four, and the sense of beating that time would give me a sense of control. And it took me decades to actually track I was doing this, realizing this is a habit of having grown up with no control, wanting control. Um, and I'd find all the time, I'd find I would have, whenever I got into a pressured situation where Troubles coming. In other words, I'm I'm under the pump. Things aren't happening. I get complete brain freeze, total and complete shutdown. Unable to function. Unable to think. Which is classic PTSD. Um, of just in freeze mode. I I, I and people would go, what you know, what? And as soon as someone else would step into that situation, I'd normally be able to keep it going until someone else. But as soon as I step in, I'd happily step back. Thank God, you know, they can take responsibility for this because growing up. If I was responsible for something or perceived wrong and I got punished, it was horrendous. So I'd, I I wouldn't even have been able to explain this to people that this is what was going on. But this, I've, I've, as I've gone understanding rewiring and spoken to people with PTSD, returned servicemen, we have a guy in church who was a Vietnam vet, another guy who'd been over to East Timor, um, you know, beginning to ex- explain what they'd gone through. I go, that's what that is. That's yeah. what, okay. And yeah. repeated dreams. I mean, I'd have a dream that would constantly come up, um, that were playing the same, that was, I've left the cult, but I find myself back in there. I passed year 12, but I know I've got to pass it again. And it was like tormenting Groundhog's Day. Um, so there would be things in there that would just be there. If as well, one of the patterns that would be there, if I was in a, a situation where someone was doing something incorrect, an authority figure was asking what had happened, I knew it, my default was to tell on them. <laughs> I have, you know, I'm not copying that. You're the one who's done it. You know, that, that, that default knee jerk, it's almost like the knee jerk reaction of I'm wired this way. This is unhealthy. Um, so very much having to identify those behaviors, analyze where they came from and things like being unable with hating asking for direction. Um, and that goes back to another event I went to when I was growing up. So just, you know, as I said, being able to dial back to the cause of this purposely rewire and as I said 
God will perfect that which concerns me. A man's way is not in him. You know, I stand behind you, directing you which way you live. I'm quoting some scripture here, but just going to God, going, God, I'm wired wrong. I need you to supernaturally give me wisdom. I need you to rewire me and help me. I need you to take me through events that you can orchestrate to identify this and then heal me. I mean, that's, that's where a lot of it's been, of just going, this is beyond me. Mm. <laughs> I'm wired wrong. <laughs> well, I'm broken. I, I, I need to send my husband to your church because my husband never <laughs> asks for directions and it drives me nuts. Anyway, uh, you, a couple you, more questions. You know the Saviour, Noel? It's called a GPS. <laughs> God's yeah. positioning system. I'm telling oh, you, oh, fantastic. That's gorgeous. <laughs> um, just a couple more questions. Um, sure, sure. I'm aware that many adults um, have flashbacks or triggers when their own kids attain the age uh, that traumatic incidents occurred to them. Um, with your two beautiful children, uh, did that occur with, with you and your kids? Yeah, I'll say two things in here, Noel. Firstly, would have been a very considered decision when I was about 19 of in prayer of, of going back to the headwater of the situation. So just going in prayer to God and God directs us, forgive as you've been forgiven. Um, and I made a very considered decision. Okay, these people willingly, willfully and purposely did this to me. I have a choice how I'm going to process this. I can be a victim and blame or I can take Christ into that situation, the headwater of the situation and willfully, willingly let them go of the debt that they owe me because they do. They owe me. They whip me off by doing these things. And I've recounted some of those things. There's a debt they owe me. And so having experienced a debt being paid for me, I willingly did it. And what I found, this and this is the supernatural part to it, is it took, and they speak of cortisol and serotonin. So when someone relives an event, the body reproduces these biochemicals and that's the stress level, that's the body breakdown. I found, and you relive the event as if it happened yesterday, so you keep reliving it. And there's a book, Deadly Emotions, uh, I think by Corbett, who's a doctor who does an exceptional job on laying this out. And so what I found supernaturally happen is I was able to go back to these events and uh, that stopped happening. I'm able to recall them, remember them, but without the angst, without the bitterness, the choice to forgive, to let go of the debt, did something supernatural in me that played out into the physical. So something spiritual fixed my soul, my will, my emotions, and then impacted my body. So when my kids came along, I'm holding my newborn daughter in my arms, and everyone said, when you have your daughter, you're going to go, how could your mother ever have given you up? You're going to hate her. All I'm experiencing is the miracle and the joy of this little girl Hmm. Yeah. Is I'm going to have the rest of my life to have a relationship with her. You know, she looks up at me with these trusting eyes, opens her mouth, begins to suck my finger. Just a joy and a warmth and a, a miracles happen, and just incredible. And then the events of the age that I was and getting to those of my kids, and instead of it being, you know, when I was 15, I got put out of the cult, and you lucky little, it was just like, you know what, this is really cool. My daughter's probably 17 by then, my son's 15, and going, isn't our life good? It's good, it's pleasing, it's perfect. We've done it based upon what God says works, and I get my daughter 18, she's not drunk. She's not suffering with broken relationships and, and STDs. I'm not freaked out. She's going to go out and pick something up or get killed. Yeah. My son's got to that age as well. He became head boy of a school. I mean, it's just each milestone has been ones of joy, you know, of this is working, this is good. So you know, 
I got oh. married. We were over in Glenelg. I remember walking on the beach with my wife. At one of you know, towards the end of that sunset happening, we're walking, looking at the waters, sunset. Go, you know what? If, if we make this work, and we are going to, mm. we've got a bright future to look forward to. Kids, grandkids. It's going to be a, a wonderful life, and. Having begun to hit those milestones and experience this, of actually the dreams you have to actually find that the worldview, that the promises God gives us, if you live them out, actually make them happen when it seems so impossible when you started out with the start I speak of, to actually hit those and have well-respected children, to be well-respected, to, you know, I've served on boards of schools. I'm the PNC president of, you know, a school. I'm on the board, uh, contribute to, remember, I've held a job down for over 23 years, certified project manager, um, you know, happily married for 27 years, kids doing well. I've got to say, you know what? I'm a very satisfied customer, <laughs> and I have yeah. a relationship with my mum as well. Oh, do you? So she yes. didn't shut the door. She opened the door. Well, we had a fluke meeting Yeah. when my son would have been around five years old, so probably some 15, 14 years ago, where we both happened to turn up at my grandmother's house. She was back from overseas, still a cult member, and went yeah. to visit her mum. Yeah. And Anna told her to never have anything to do with me. And of course, she promised for that to happen, but she figured this was a get out of jail card. I initiated contact, you know, and so we stayed in contact. I, you know, and it's a lengthy, and I won't go there with you, but sort of worked out how to fix the relationship, lack of lies, truthfulness, have you changed, begin to work things through. And, um, yeah, we've, we've stayed in contact. Um, I've, I've chosen to let her go of the debt. Um, but also not be naive, also deal with her with issues, speak to her about what truth is and what's happened and to the level at which she's able to have a relationship is the level we have it um, and the level at which she engages with my grandkids is her choice and their choice. So it's, yeah. you know, it's, it's good, as good as what it can be. You know, when you look back to what you've been through, Ben, I think you must be so... Uh, oh, I don't know what the word is. Thankful doesn't seem enough that, you know, you... Um, blessed. Blessed. That is a very good word, yes. blessed, that you met your wife, that you've got yep. your beautiful kids. And as you say, I just think it's so lovely that you can look at your newborn daughter and look at her with just a, an excitement for the future rather than oh, my God, when I was this age, you know, this happened. Yep. I think to have that attitude yep. with your kids is, um, gee, you must have done it. Well, you have done a lot of work, haven't you, Ben? Yeah, and, and you know, I've the word God gives us, when, and you've probably heard Christians speak about being saved, I've been saved. Well, that actual word is sozo, which would be, is actually being made whole. That's mm. actually what the word means. That's the Greek mm. word. Mm. So my experience with God is it's he connected me with him, a spiritual person's being born, and I'm in the process of being made whole. My spirit, my will, my emotions, my body, and that's been my experience, is that God's put back that which was stolen from me. God's restored dignity. God's given me a method of how to do it, um, and it's worked and worked well. And I, as I said, that's, that's, it's pretty cool. It's a pretty cool life. So, uh, and he extends that to everyone. All you are broken hearted, all you who are captive, come. 
a bruised weed, a smoldering wick, I will not turn away. Take the yoke upon me, I'm going to help you. That's that's the invitation he extends to us all, and it's, it's up to us to choose what we do with that. But my experience has been I'm a very satisfied customer. <laughs> hey, can you tell us uh, uh, the circumstances around when and how you shared your upbringing with your children and how they reacted? Yeah, sure. Great, great question there. Um, look, so I have would have quite often told my story when people ask. One of the things, you know, you'll, you'll get with genuine what I would call instead of transfer growth, you're dealing with people that have been in jail, drugs, whatever, come into the church, have a conversion experience, meet the real Jesus. One of the coolest things is to sit down and, and get the rap sheet. What happened before? What's the change? It's really, you know, it's exciting. And that would often happen. Have them over for dinner. You talk about it. And then they'd ask, well, what's your background? And you'd start to tell them. My kids would listen and they'd hear bits of the story. And, you know, it's it's part of their – it's their story too. It's who their mum was, their dad, all of that sort of stuff. And then I've started pastoring and you're dealing with people with – you know, some major issues and stuff. I began to realize, you know what, there's a toolbox to fix this that I realized over time, you know, and began to share my story in a manner of this This is some of the things that I know to have worked and I would tell it publicly and my kids would be there. Um, and then once my mum eventually came back to Australia and instead of going to the coach, she chose to spend the two weeks with me and with my family and she wanted before she headed up to um, New South Wales to, in a sense, try and reconnect, reconcile with her first, you know, sons from her first marriage. Um, she said, do you want to go on a holiday somewhere? And I went, what a great opportunity. Mum, let's let's go back to Eildon. So we did. Went yeah. back to Lake Eildon, took uh, my wife, my kids with me. Um, yes, yeah, so Oh, well, it gave a perfect opportunity to take my mum down memories lane yeah. <laughs> and ask some questions. Yeah. What happened here, mum? What was your experience here? There's something about a location that instead of it being something different, I actually asked when we get up to this place called Sunny Corner, which is where she would look after a lot of people and had me looking after. And when the owners would come, she'd have to hot tail to, to Melbourne and then taking them back to Eildon. That's where she had been for a period of 18 months before, yeah. you know, she had me. Um, it's sort of location made it easier to ask the questions in context. So anyway, my kids, my kids are with me um, through this event and, my mum stayed in the car with my wife and we walked down the huge hill around the lake and I took them on a tour and I had my camera with me and they'd heard all of the stories. I was able to give them a location of, you know, where there's under the house is where we were dunked in water. This is the bedroom. This is, we were looking in, we couldn't get in. This was someone's house and stuff. So, um, yeah, I was able to take them through it, show them it all and give them a context. And I think my son would have been, I think nine, my daughter would have been 11 maybe 12 about that stage. So, yeah, I was at, you know, this is where I played on the swings and they were on it as well. And I've, I've actually put the put the video together about 11 minutes and stuff just, just in the archives. So, um, yeah, it's it's cool. It sort of really helped. So my daughter says she could tell my story better than I could. Uh, I say, no, you can't, no, you can't hun. While you might know it, you didn't live it. Thank God you didn't. Oh, I was just going to say, thank God she didn't. Um, yeah, yeah. In finishing up, Ben, it's oh, it's just fascinating. What is your main emotion now when you think about Anne Hamilton Byrne? Because she passed away last year, was it, or this year? Yeah, no, it was last year, 2019. Yep. So I actually, if, if anyone wants to go to rescuethefamily.com, 
and look up blogs. There's I've written what's called an an, an unauthorized eulogy <laughs> um, on there, and that's quite a detailed how I feel, what I think. But the short term of it is, I look at Anne as a useful idiot, um, very evil. <laughs> Sorry. Perfectly placed with a perfect background as the devil looks for warm flesh to inhabit and control society and control people. He found the perfect individual, just as God looks for warm flesh to inhabit by the Holy Spirit and and direct. Um, The devil's just doing exactly the same. And you'll come across people where you go, oof, this, and Lex says it rightfully, this is one of the most evil people I ever met. And he's dealt with some pretty evil people, as have you know, LB in the police Mm. force, what is it, 27 Mm. years. You get get a file for this. So for Lex to be able to say that, you're dealing with someone who was um, tapped into the demonic supernatural came up with some strategies and plans that made sure that the people that looked to her as being the saviour and connected them with God didn't, mm. um, destroyed lives, and ultimately justice is served. God says, vengeance is mine, I will repay. Some things only happen on the other side of eternity, the full scales of justice to turn. And so I look at her as saying, listen, Anne, you are what you are, you did what you did. There's a price to pay. Every man will stand before the throne of God and give an account for their life. We're appointed to live once and then comes the judgment. And I'm very glad I'm not you because you're going to spend an awful lot of time in a jail you'll never get out of mm. in yes. hell. So I was just, just going to say, yeah, I was just going to say something terrible there, but um, I was just going to say, and, and, may, and may she rot and may she rot in hell. Mm. Yeah, and, and the truth is, is... Prisons are supposed to have two things to them, Noel. You put people into them when they violate a healthy society because they need time out. Now, awful ones are designed to people can never change, can never get out. Healthy ones are rehabilitation. I can thankfully say in Australia, part of the component of justice is rehabilitation. But there are some people that should never get out. They never change. And the healthiest thing you can do is to exclude them from polite society forever. And we have a few of those in the world um, that are needed. And, and that's in essence what God says heaven and hell is. He says heaven's with me in polite society where you're in relationship with me, living according to my kingdom. And hell's for all of those that are so reprobate, they reject me and they don't want to be there. And some people, <laughs> that is, that's, that's what's needed because we don't want a repeat of all the heartache and pain we've seen in this world when people reject doing it God's way. Because the level at which you digress is the level of the Anne Hamilton Burns and the Hitlers and the Li Jinpings and the many others that are around, uh, Mayo Dong, Karl Marx, um, Ted Bundy's, and on and on that we have in this world. Mm-hmm. Well, Ben, it's been an abs- it's been an absolute pleasure, and I'm just thinking to myself, you know, we'll finish off, but I'm just thinking to myself, you know, you could command an amazing uh, presence at a dinner party, like you'd never want to leave listening to your story. Seriously, uh, you know, I shouldn't say stories because it's it's your life, yeah. uh, and I no, don't make true. fun of it. Yes. I'm just thinking to myself, no, you would absolutely. just be a fascinating guest at a dinner party. I better organise it, I think. Yes. <laughs> no, more than happy. I, I've actually, in Ballarat, I, I remember giving a speech twice to Probus, um, professional and business group yep. twice, yep. and yeah, very much had, had that feel to it. 
I've told my story in many many a location before, and part part of writing this book um, and moving towards you know, I have an agent with potential movie rights. Um, with someone already approached me for that is is to create a platform where I can help and speak into um, yeah, in some manner. Yeah, would would be wonderful. So more than Plug happy to. Book. Plug your book. That's the one. So the, the book in will is in, if I finish writing it, it's in edit mode, but it's called uh, Life Behind the Wire, Rescuing the Family. Um, so if you go to my website, you can look up book and I've got an excerpt in there that's been changed. It'll give you a bit of a flavor. And um, yeah, I, I don't know how long this process is going to take of getting it edited and published, but um, if, if anyone wishes to subscribe, I'll be sending an email out when it becomes available. So should be good. Well, Ben, thank you again. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you, Noel. An absolute pleasure as well. Thank you, Ben. Hey, it's Narelle here again. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoy the podcasts as much as we enjoy putting them together. But to make sure you never miss an episode of Narelle Fraser Interviews, hit subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to leave a rating and even a review. And please share it with all your friends too. And again, thanks for joining us. We have got some amazing stories to tell. So thanks again. See ya. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.